It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Terrific episode of The Rock Show. This is episode one, 130, my God. And we talk about a um, very strange guy, uh, Jonathan Richmond, a musician. Like He pretty much picked up a guitar from early age, and he knew that's what he wanted to do. Right. Yeah, so I mean, he, he's Jonathan Richmond. I mean, he's, he's one of the more, even today, he's one of the more mysterious guys, you know, in rock and roll history. He influenced a lot of people. Yes. Okay. Uh, had the unique situation of having two albums out, debut albums come out at the same time with two different bands with basically the same name, the Modern yeah. Lovers. Okay. Yeah. And two different styles of the music. Uh, I don't recall anybody being in that situation. And I think that that situation kind of hurt him because. I think people were confused. Like, who is this guy? What does he sound like? And, 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 you know, he was set on this new style of music as opposed to what he was playing for a couple of years before that. I'll get into all that. But, but I, I feel that he's, very, I mean, he was very talented, a, a direct line from kind of the Velvet Underground, what they were doing to, to him. Uh, but, you know, the, the, he influenced so many people that came not too long after. Uh, bands like The Cars, bands like The Ramones and The Sex Pistols. Um, God, even Joan Jett. And a lot, a lot of the punk bands were influenced by him. Uh, but also more of the art rock. I hate that word, but art rock kind of stuff. Things like, things like uh, Patti Smith and The Talking Heads. Okay, Jerry Harrison was in the Modern Lovers. He also was in the Talking Heads. Yeah. So you know, and that's another thing is is he's played a lot of his band members went on to to much bigger projects and 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 and, and more commercial projects. Uh, but but he himself, he's he's a guy who does what he wants, plays what he wants uh, in the style that he wants. Doesn't let anybody you know, really change anything. And, and yeah, he's like a little arrogant. He's like a, very yeah, well, arrogant. well, well, I mean, I mean, look, you know, that's, that's a, that's a characteristic of somebody like that. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna want it. You do what you want to do and fuck everybody, you know? Yeah. That's very narcissistic. very, he's like one of a kind, but yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I've never, I've, I, I saw the modern lovers one time at Irving Plaza many years ago. It was like, God, it might have been 89 or 90, something like that. And he, he you know, I, I liked what he was doing, but he was kind of in a different place than where he was in the 70s. And I, yeah. I remember I remember leaving the show like, OK, that was good, but I wish he had done this, this, this and this, you know, because he kind of disowned a lot of the earliest stuff and that's the that's the stuff that still kicks ass but, but, but you know he, he had a weird thing didn't he gave up some of that earlier stuff he just yeah somebody. yeah 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 i mean that's why the the original modern lovers that's why they broke up is because 
he decided right when they were going to record their new album, no, we're not going to do this kind of music in this way. I'm into a more mellower sound now. I mean, he just, just did a complete fucking 180. You know what I mean? How the fuck does that happen? But, but well, it, it, he went to Bermuda. Talk about that. And he, you know, he met some people and he, he, musicians and he decided to have a more laid back. Maybe he just, you know, smoked some really good weed and got mellow. Yeah, but he also, he also, um, he also did something that he sneaked into a thing and he met the Velvet Underground. He was like yeah. only 15 years old. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's get into it. Um, he, he, he just had, he just recently turned 70. Okay. Uh, he was born May 16th, 1951 in Natick, Massachusetts uh, from a Jewish family. And Natick is, is right outside Boston. Yeah. Um, by his teens, he was playing guitar and writing songs. Okay. So he was pretty talented at an early age. 1967 and 68, uh, when the first like two Velvet Underground albums came out, he was really blown away, really influenced by them, obsessed with them. And uh, in 69, he graduated high school and he just picked up and moved to New York City from Boston. Yeah. Right? And he was, he was performing at that time, even in Boston, as a little bit of a solo act, like just, I think just him with a guitar kind of thing. And uh, when he went down to the, to the city here, he, you know, searched out the Velvet Underground and he became friendly with the band. He, he met them and became friendly with them, was hanging out with them. And, and he even opened up for them a couple of times. Yeah. Okay. When they would play the small clubs they were playing down here. Um, he also became friends with their manager, Steve Sesnick, for a while and just crashed on his couch for a few weeks when he had nowhere else to stay. Because yeah. uh, he wanted to be a professor. He wanted to be like a music professor. Yeah, I mean, there is this like education background with a it's lot crazy. of these guys yeah. uh, in the band. They, 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 you know, some guys would leave to go to college and come back. And uh, yeah, there was this kind of like, um, and talking heads were the same way. They were all like... Uh, you know, college educated, you know, college. okay, and that was something that was just starting to happen in the early seventies. It would continue through the seventies and into the early eighties, like this college rock. They didn't call it that back then in the seventies, but that that you know, bands like REM ten years later, okay, were, were in college and playing. You know, um, but he befriended the Velvet Underground. And was playing with them and even sleeping on their manager's couch for a while. But yeah. then he, he got his own place at the Hotel Albert on East 10th Street. Now, do you know where that is? Because it's not called that anymore. Do you, do you know where that is exactly, Rob? The Hotel Albert? Not really. What is it called? Okay. It's, 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 uh, I think it's just called the Albert now. But it's, it's on 10th Street and University. And that's like, well, like Alec Baldwin lives in there. Oh, yeah? Okay, yeah. Like, whenever you see him, like, beating up somebody for taking a parking spot, it's usually oh, right out. I know, right I out. know exactly where that is. Yeah. By, um, between 5th and something, right? So that area. It's, 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 it's like on the corner of University and going towards Broadway on 10th and 11th yeah. Street. Yeah, I've seen that building. Yeah. It's, it's all kind of weird doorman and stuff out there. It, it, it used to be a hotel, okay? Oh, and wow. It was known, it was known for... Uh, being very seedy. Okay, this is in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, you know what? Living in that building, Richard Gere lived in that building for a while. I think that's true, right? Yeah, I think I remember hearing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in the 80s, it, it got renovated and it became 
uh, it was rental for a while, and then it became, I think, it's either co-op or condo. Yeah, it's it got to be like yeah, it got to be either a co-op or condom, uh, yeah. a, a condominium. That's right. Um, it's definitely very rich. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I, I've fixed the phones in there. It's a very nice yeah. old building. Okay, uh, very well kept now. But back in those days when it was a hotel, it was kind of seedy, and it was known for uh, a lot of artists and musicians living in there over the years. And he took up a, a residency there while he was living in New York for about nine months. Now, after those nine months, he took a brief trip to Europe and Israel. Okay. But he came back to Boston right after that. And it was right there that time that he reunited with his childhood friend, John Felice, guitar player. Okay. And they organized a band based on the Velvet Underground. They wanted to kind of pattern it after them. They quickly recruited drummer David Robinson and bass player Rolf Anderson, and they called themselves the Modern Lovers. Now, they played their first date in September of 19. It was barely a month after they, they formed. All right. They were already out playing. He wow. had a whole bunch of songs already written, so it wasn't like they had to start from scratch. And... uh they ended up, the first gig they ever did, uh, they opened for Andy Paley's band called the Sidewinders. Andy Paley is, would later on be one part of the Paley Brothers. Andy plays drums. Uh, his, oh, shit, I can't remember his name. It might be Ron Paley. I, I forget his, his brother's name. But they, in the 70s, they were kind of like a power pop group. Mm. Okay, very very cool band. Didn't exist for too long, but but they they, they definitely were in that power pop direction kind of like the romantics that kind of stuff now um by the time that the set this this uh show happened with the with uh, andy paley he already had tracks like roadrunner written and they were performing that uh she cracked the song hospital uh, all the famous stuff that he's known for was really written and already part of the set list at that point it was fucking good man yeah yeah now Richmond uh, had a very unique presence on stage for that time. All right. He, he had a short haircut, which yeah. in the early 70s was not common. Okay, everybody, the guys had grown their hair out. All right. And he would perform sometimes in a jacket and tie. And nobody was looking like that in 71, you know. So he often, too, on stage, like he would... You know, he'd play a new song and just come up with lyrics off the top of his head live right then. You, okay. you know what he reminded me of? Like a little bit of um, Huey Louie in the news. Well, yeah. But that, guy used to, that guy used to short hair, come in a suit and look like a total dick. Yeah, I mean, that was... Ten looking like a total dick was a little more in fashion, like in the early 80s, like Miami Vice looking and all that. Because yeah, he used to wear, he used to wear the the neon uh, suits and everything like that. But, but, but Richmond, it was more like, a, you know, a, a ruffled jacket and tie. You know, when I say ruffled, I mean wrinkled jacket and tie. Uh, you know, just kind of like a, a bum with his hair short. You know, he was kinda, like a nerd. Yeah, oh yeah. No, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. He was a nerd. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, nobody, but nobody was doing that. Nobody yeah. was doing that. So... You know, if anything, I, I'd kind of put him in kind of a almost a, a pre-David Byrne 
Yeah. You know, from the talking heads kind of nerdy dude. Definitely. He didn't wear glasses, but, you know. Yeah, now, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more like that, you know. And there is a direct line, like I said, from, from the modern lovers right to the talking heads. So it's kind of in that, in that vein. So he would often tell stories, okay? And the way his, his songs were constructed, they, like he talked sometimes in the songs. Uh, songs like Hospital, you know, like it's not really sung through the whole song. Okay, it's more like he's telling this story. And he got that from Lou Reed. You know, Lou Reed has a, had that kind of style. Uh, though with the Velvet Underground, he sang a little bit more. But, but Lou Reed's solo stuff, he kind of talked, you know, the words. Um, now, in early 71, Anderson and Felice would leave the band. And they got replaced by Harvard students, bassist Ernie Brooks and keyboardist Jerry Harrison. And that completed the classic modern lovers lineup. So they went from two guitar players down to a keyboard player and a guitar player and a new and a new uh, bass player. Okay. Yeah, because they so, gave that unique sound. Yeah, yeah. The keyboard did. I think that that definitely uh, if they were going for a velvet underground kind of thing, there's that oh, there's totally. that organ in there. You know, there's some yeah. songs that, that are like, yeah, he's he's just doing the velvets, you know. But uh this new configuration with this keyboard sound was very popular in the Boston area. It really kind of took off. And word of mouth about the band led to Stuart Love of Warner Brothers Records uh, contact them. And he organized the band's first multi-track recording session at the Intermediate Studios in Boston. Now, the demo produced from this session and some very good live generated more attention from the industry soon a and m records was was interested in the band as well all right uh so they were getting courted by a and m and warner brothers at the same time now in april of 72 the modern lovers traveled to los angeles where they held two different demo sessions the first was produced by the velvet underground's john kale and that was for warner brothers okay and the second was produced by a guy named alan mason and that was for A&M Records. And these sessions were later used on the band's debut album, okay, uh, even though they were for two different labels. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, yeah, Mike, you want to hear something weird about He also wasn't a good... Um, he hated doing the studio stuff. He was great live, but he said doing the studio and recording was very frustrating to him. Um, yeah, I think that... Well, you know what? For a guy that's made a ton of albums, I don't know if that was something he was experiencing early on, maybe, because, I, I mean, he, 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 yeah. Like, he, he hates somebody telling him, okay, you did it, let's do it again. He says, like, you don't go out for pizza and just have, you have pizza, you don't go, let's do it again. So <laughs> yeah. That arrogant fucking kind of like well, some, way some of, guys, Some guys are like, some guys have the attitude, I'm not doing another take, all right? It was good this time, it's good enough. Johnny Ramone was like that. Johnny, yeah, this Johnny guy, Ramone this guy hated was like that too. Yeah, and I, I, you know, you just, I don't know. I mean, some people, that's how they want their, their music to be. A one take, boom, we got it. Let's move on to the next one. And there's something to be said for that, okay? Uh, some great albums have been recorded that way in one or two yeah. takes. Okay, yeah. but, but when you're dealing with uh, a big label like Warner Brothers, like A&M, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be like, well, you know, maybe it's good for you to have another take. 
you know, and, and, and just in case something doesn't work out or we don't like the sound of one, we could use the other. But yeah, I mean, he just didn't have the patience for that. So yeah, he did he, not have patience. Right, for that. right, right, right. Now, um, while they were in California doing these demo sessions, they also did some live shows. And one particular gig at the Long Branch Saloon in Berkeley ended up being used as a live album, but that would be issued much, much later. Um, producer Kim Fowley, the eccentric producer, courted the band for a while. Okay, He was after them, and he ended up traveling back to Boston to meet up with them to record some poor-quality demos. Uh, these did not sound that good. That was in June of 72. John Felice rejoined the group for a few months after his graduation from college, and the band moved together to live in Cohasset, Massachusetts. The Modern Lovers continued to be a popular live attraction, and on New Year's Eve of 72, they came down to New York City to support the New York Dolls at the Mercer Arts Center. Uh, this was an infamous bill that also included Suicide and Wayne County opening for the Dolls as well. Um, early in 73, now, before I get into that, that particular show, I should mention, uh, the, the New Year's Eve show was attended by many people who obviously were Dolls fans, but also people that went on to do, you know, a lot of the New York punk scene. Guys from the Ramones were in there, okay? Uh, obviously, the Dolls and, and Johnny Thunders got a good look at what Richmond was doing because uh, they wouldn't be around for much longer. Um, he definitely, this particular show, a lot of people attended, and these people all ended up playing in bands in just a couple of years. So that was that's the strong influence right there with, wow. the, New York, with the New York scene. So in 73, they finally got signed, and this Warner Brothers gave them a, a contract. However, before returning to Los Angeles to work with Kale again on the album, John Kale was going to produce it, accepted an offer to play a residency at the... Inver Hotel in Bermuda, okay? And while they were there, Richmond heard and became strongly influenced by these kind of like laid-back style musicians in the local scene, okay? What would be the music scene? You know, I was like kind of... Spanish, I, right? I was like, kind, no, no, Bermuda, Bermuda is more like... Uh, oh, Jamaican? Yeah, like more like... A, I'm trying to think what it could have been in 72. Yeah, you know, like, like 73... Like, like it could have been reggae influenced somewhat, okay, or more of a, even a calypso kind of sound. I'm not sure, okay, uh, but whatever it was, it was it was a laid back style that he liked the way that they they played. Yeah, because you know what? His first, he was talking in the interview. He was saying that the first song that he ever really played his guitar was Zorro because he loved that uh, Latin influence of playing yeah. guitar. There might be a Latin influence, and in, I mean it's the Caribbean. Okay, yeah. so it's it's definitely a Latin influence in so he, some way. Yeah, even even Calypso that. was Latin influenced. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you think you think uh, I don't know. I mean, what, whatever it was, it it had a, a big influence on him, and he wanted to change his whole sound. And the band members were like, "Wait a minute, what the fuck are you talking about? We're yeah. we're about we're about <laughs> to go to L.A. We did we're doing these shows with some extra dough." Okay, we're going to go to L.A., meet up with John Cale, one of your heroes, to produce an album. Okay, we've already met him. We already know what it's like to work with him. It should be an easy thing, right? But he decided to 
change change and that created a lot of tension in the band okay pretty much immediately um now although the band's return uh, you know it, it it when he when they returned um it was a totally different direction so warner brothers was surprised that they were doing this all right and the rest of the band was like we're not really on board with this we don't mind changing after but we've gotten this far so let's do the album in the style that we've we've always played for the last two years okay and uh you know the, the these sessions with kale this was in september of 73 ended up being a disaster okay not only because of the the change in direction the arguments you know within the bands within the band itself and they did record heavier style okay which would be released later on but it was it was a battle with richmond he really didn't want to do that and they had a a, a tragedy happen because the, the band was good friends with graham parsons and Grant Parsons died in September of 73. Yeah, they did. Okay. Uh, and so they were kind of devastated by the death of their friend. And these recording sessions really just turned out to be unusable. So the record company then recruited Kim Fowley to produce some more sessions with the band. And this time it was at Gold Star Studios, if you remember. That's, that's Phil Spector's spot. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that produced some much better results. All right. And however, these recordings with Fowley would not be released until 1981 when Greg Shaw's Bomp label, Bomp Records, released the original Modern Lovers album. Okay. And following the failure to complete a debut album, Warner Brothers just kind of withdrew their support. They said, We're done with you. Okay. And at the point, that point, drummer Robinson left the band. Uh, they continued to perform live for a few months with a new drummer named Bob Turner. Uh, but Richmond, as time went on, was increasingly unwilling to do his old stuff. OK, uh, even though these songs hadn't really been released yet. OK, but they were known as a live band and songs like Roadrunner and She Cracked and stuff like that. Uh, were, 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 this is what people came to see if you were in the know, if you knew the band. OK. A final disagreement, big argument with Jerry Harrison over the musical direction and the musical style, and that would cause the band to break up and split up in February of '74. All right. So, despite the original group's premature breakup, many of its members found considerable success elsewhere. Yeah. John John Felice formed the Real Kids, very cool band out of Boston. Uh, Jerry Harrison later joined the Talking Heads, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. David, David Robinson would co-found the Cars, okay? And Ernie Brooks would later work with David Johansson and, and some other people. Uh, Look at the influence right there. Yeah, I mean... Think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it really is. I mean, I always talk about bands that, that are kind of like at this point in history that everything is different after. And, and I include richmond in that even though he really didn't sell a lot uh not that you have to i mean but there's certain bands that come along and they do something and you know maybe they don't sell a lot of records but everybody that listened to them went on and formed bands 
Okay, the Velvet yeah, Underground were he, like that. He was very influential, like in Europe. They liked they liked yeah. him in Europe. Yeah, yeah, he did very well over there. Uh, guys from the Sex Pistols, uh, Glenn Matlock was a big fan. They the Sex Pistols would do a cover of Roadrunner. Okay, wow. they they would do they would do that. Um, now, Richmond continued recording on his own, and he eventually would relocate out to California in 1975. He was working with a label called Berserkly Records. Uh, their boss, the the boss of that label, Matthew King Kaufman used to work at A&M. So he had met Jonathan Richmond during those A&M sessions a little bit earlier when, they, when he was out there doing those demos. Um, Richmond never would really return to the Velvet Underground-inspired sound of the original band, but the demo recordings made with that group eventually surfaced in some different formats. The first of all these releases came out in 1976 when Berserkly released an LP from the first two demo sessions with Kale and Mason. Okay. And this album was simply titled the modern lovers and included, you know, all the great tracks like road runner. She cracked Pablo Picasso. Okay. Uh, it has that great line in there. You know, Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole. You know, that's, that's, that's a, that was, there was a band called, uh, oh, shit, I can't remember the name of them right now. Oh God. It'll come to me. But there, there's the Repo Man soundtrack. Remember that movie? Yeah, the Repo Man. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was, that was a great soundtrack. It had everybody on it. Iggy Pop and, yeah. and stuff. He had the, the title track. But they, there's a cover, a band, uh, The Burning Sensations. That was the name of them. They did, a, they did a, a cover of that. Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole. You know, I always cracked up with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, Richmond, Richmond, okay, didn't recognize this album as anything. He didn't recognize it as his first debut album. Uh, what he preferred to recognize was his debut album, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And that album had a slightly lighter sound uh, in mind. And it was a completely different band, different guys. Okay. The fucked up thing is both of these albums came out only a few months apart in 1976. And that confused so, everybody. I think, yeah, it confused everybody. What is this band and why do they sound different and, you know, different songs and everything. So um, what had happened is both of these came out at the same time, but the original Modern Lovers, that record, ended up being the one that everybody picked up on. All right. And there, there was a great critical reaction to it. Uh, Ira Robbins... Okay, was a big critic at the time, wrote that, you know, is one of the truly great art rock albums of all time. Now, I don't know why they call it art rock, you know, but that's that's a term that was used for a little while when they didn't know what the fuck to call. It, okay, so <clears throat> to me, I, I would call it like proto punk. All right. Uh, you know, bands like DMC5 and the Stooges, you could throw Jonathan Richmond in with that as well. I mean, you listen to Roadrunner. Uh, and particularly she cracked. I mean, you could hear what would be coming out, you know, what was starting to come out that year, okay, in 76, 77, 78. Okay, it was definitely uh, an influence to that whole scene. Um, in early 76, Richmond put together a new version of the Modern Lovers, okay, uh, with Leroy Radcliffe on guitar, Greg Curly Kerman on bass and a returning David Robinson on drums. 
Now, Karen Ke- had previously played with a band called the Rubinus, and Radcliffe had played with a band called Woody's Truck Stop. They recorded the album Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers in 1976, but Robinson left again after Richmond kept reducing the size of his drum kit. Okay. <laughs> so I, he found that very fucking annoying and left the band. And he was replaced by a, a drummer named D. Shuck. And this band recorded the album Rock and Roll with the Modern Lovers in 1977 and toured extensively behind that album. Uh, bass player Karenin would leave to go to college and was replaced by Asa Brebna. And two more releases, The Modern Lovers Live and Back in Your Life, followed in 1978 and 79. In uh, 1980, Richmond again formed the new Modern Lovers, okay, with, the Ker- with Karenin, drummer Michael Guadabasio, and backing singers Ellie Marshall and Beth Harrison. Uh, Beth Harrington, I'm sorry. Um, that album is very... Uh, the album Jonathan Sings that came out of that lineup uh, was recorded between 81 and 82. It ended up coming out in 83, and it's really considered one of his best. Uh, I would say so only because it's very different. I mean, with the two girl backup singers, and yeah. they're really, they're very prominent. If you listen to Jonathan Sings, like every song has these like prominent backup singers. And the, the, the production on that album, is like so clean. It's it's very noticeable. Okay, uh, really, the, the backup singers are kind of very much in the forefront. So you really have this like girl group sound in the back. Okay, now there were some tracks like that summer feeling that out uh, this kind of music and the tag game. Uh, and like I said, it's considered one of his best records. In '85, the group was configured again, reconfigured. And Asa Brebner was on bass and drummer Andy Paley was brought in. Okay. By 88, there would be more lineup changes. And Jonathan Richmond finally retired the name The Modern Lovers for Good. Okay. In 1988. So everything from this point on is just Jonathan Richmond. He, got, he just got rid of the name. Why did he change the group so many times? Because he definitely, you think it was him? It had to be. And I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think the guy's kind of, you know, I think he's a genius. All right. But he might just be really hard to work with. And I think he kind of feels that some of these people are disposable in a way. I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. That's what it is. Cause yeah. For him to play with some, but all those guys, anybody he played with always went on to greater success anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's kind of a springboard to other things. Uh, but he's, but you know, he is well respected. So it's, it's not like he's a total dick. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's just, he, he has his way of working and you either, I guess, conform to it or you don't, yeah, either, you know, I mean, it's, it's, that's the deal. You know, you go into it with your eyes open, I guess. I don't know. So from, fun. yeah. So from, and then how many guys have we talked about like that? All right. So it's not, it's not that uncommon. No. Um, uh, from 88 to 92. Richmond performed mostly as a solo act to support his Rounder Records albums. Okay, he had been signed to a label called Rounder. Uh, Jonathan Richmond album in 1989, self-titled. Jonathan Goes Country in 1990, and it's 
basically as it's described. It's a country kind of themed album. Um, and having a party with, with uh, Jonathan Richmond was another album that came out in 91. Um, 92, he released an album called I, Jonathan. Uh, and he, this was when he connected with Tommy Larkin on drums. Yeah. All right. And Tommy Larkin would continue to play with him for the next 25 years. Okay, so uh, here's a guy that obviously he could work with, obviously. Um, in 93, he contributed the track Hot Nights to an AIDS benefit album called No Alternative, and it was produced by the Red Hot Organization. Uh, always having a big cult following, Richmond got some mainstream exposure in the 90s. Uh, if you remember, he did quite a few appearances on Late Night with Conan O'Brien yeah. through the 90s. I, I do remember that well. And that boosted his career. I think, I think Conan O'Brien was pushing him, right? He was friends with him or something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. But uh, there's also a scene in the very successful 1988 film There's Something About Mary with Jonathan Richmond and, and Tommy Larkin. Do you remember that I, scene? Those are the two guys playing music, right? Yeah. The whole thing? Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of talking in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, that kind of exposed him to a much bigger audience. Because uh, he was pretty much a, 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 like a cult level. You know what I mean? So Richmond would continue to release albums throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, one album was actually in Spanish. Okay. And it's called Jonathan Te Vas a Emocionar. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Te Vas. You're going to get emotional. You're going to get emotional, right? That's what yeah. I thought he was. Yeah, something like that. Okay. That came out in 1994. And it was followed by the 1995 album, You Must Ask the Heart, Surrendered to Jonathan in 96, I'm So Confused in 1998, and Her Majesty, Not or High Heels and I Shadow, okay? That was in 2001. And Not So Much uh, to Be Loved as to Love was an album in 2004. Um, in 1998, the live recording from the Long Branch Saloon finally surfaced, okay? And that was the original Modern Lovers lineup from the early 70s. And uh, that came out. Uh, also, um, there was a live DVD in 2002 called Take Me to the Plaza, all right? Now, <clears throat> Richmond has got two recent albums, um, 2016 and 2018, uh, 2016 is called Ish Code, Ish Code. Yeah. And 2018 is just called S.A. And yeah, and just like everybody else, you know, he's been sidelined by, by COVID. Okay. Uh, I think he was planning some touring in 2019, 2020, and it didn't exactly materialize. It didn't pan out. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I'd like to see him come back. I wouldn't mind catching him one more time in my life. I did see him once. So. That's all I got for you, Mr. Rossi, Jonathan Richmond. Man, another excited, another underground guy that influenced a lot of people. But uh, yeah. what a hell of a career. And more albums, he's still active. Like you say, if it wasn't for, he probably would have been out playing guitar somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, hopefully he comes around. Yeah, he probably comes around, you know, so because a lot of people are starting to come around. You see a lot of shows starting to uh, get booked and stuff. So hopefully we can continue on this trend. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of like shows scheduled for September, October, November. You know, I think they're kind of waiting a little bit to see what happens. Yeah, that's all they're doing, waiting. 
So, Mike, how can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on a lot of social media sites. I'm on Instagram, RockerMike212 on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on MeWe under RockerMike. You can find me on CloutHub under RockerMike. And, of course, on Facebook under RockoMike, RockoMike. And under the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook, check it out. It's exploded over the last week. Uh, we're approaching 1,000 members soon, man. I think we're in the high 800s. So, wow. yeah, so uh, hopefully we'll get that 1,000-point mark. And uh, we've had some very cool posts lately uh, on that page. A lot of new, new members have been putting things up. So definitely check out the Rock Show podcast group page. Where can we find you, Rob? Uh, you pretty much can find me on anything getting lumped up. If you look getting lumped up, you see my big hair come out. And you can find <laughs> me on Instagram, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook under the Getting Lumped Up umbrella. And um, to everyone else out there, don't get drunk. Get, get lumped up. up. See you next week. Take care, people. Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ear. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the Rock Show. Let's get lumped up on the rock show.